Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Thanks for checking out our theological equipping class all semester. We've been talking about apologetics, worldviews, and world religions. And today we want to discuss Hinduism. Of all the religions that we're studying this semester, Hinduism and Buddhism, which I think we'll, we'll tackle next week, are the most drastically different from our Western American worldview. Even if we're not very familiar with what Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses believe, at least they use the same language as Christianity. Same with Islam in a lot of senses, but not Hinduism. It's an entirely different vernacular. And I don't just mean because most Hindus speak Hindi. I mean the concepts themselves are entirely different. Not only is Hinduism so obviously different from Christianity and other Western religions, but each and every Hindu is different from others in regards to what they believe. There's therefore this incredible amount of diversity within the borders of the religion. For instance, some Hindus are pantheists. They believe that everything is God in some sense. Others are polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. Others are monotheists. They believe that there is one God. Or henotheists. We'll talk about what that means shortly. In fact, there are even agnostic or atheist Hindus. And that's not at all a contradiction within the religion. Think about how strange that is to our ears. Imagine someone saying that they're a polytheistic Christian. That sounds weird to us. Well, it actually isn't that hard because that's actually what Mormons are. But what about an atheistic Christian? What does that mean? That's nonsensical. But the idea of an atheistic Hindu isn't nonsensical at all, as we will see. So this might be the most difficult lesson I've ever taught in some sense, because if 100 Hindus were to listen to this, all 100 might say, that's not actually what I believe. Then again, for that reason, this might be the easiest lesson, because although all might say that's not what I believe, they would also say, but it is consistent with Hinduism in general, and that's the point. There is this complexity and this diversity to the religion. So as we try to wrap our heads around Hinduism, here are the questions we're going to ask this morning. Number one, what is Hinduism? Number two, what do Hindus, uh, Hindus believe about God or gods, plural? Number three, what is the Hindu concept of scripture? Four, what is the Hindu concept of salvation? Five, what is reincarnation? Six, what are the roles of castes and stages of life for Hindus? Seven, what is the significance of holy times and places in Hinduism? Eighth, what does, uh, or how does Hinduism relate to Christianity? We'll, we'll tackle this last question bit by bit as we go, but we'll close our time by kind of summarizing things we've noted along the way. So buckle up, let's go. This is gonna be fun. What is Hinduism? Well, there are, there are about one billion Hindus worldwide, mostly in, uh, in India. A little uh, over 80% of the population of India would consider themselves Hindu but with large populations also in Nepal and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. This makes uh, it about the third largest religion in the world behind Christianity and Islam. There are even over one million Hindus in North America. And e even though Hindus constitute only about 13% of the world's population, the significance of the religion is much greater than that for uh, a couple of reasons. First, because it was instrumental in the development of other religions, such as uh, Buddhism 
or Jainism or Sikhism or the New Age movement and various other spiritual and philosophical movements in both the East and the West. So the, the roots of the religion go well beyond those who call themselves Hindu. Second reason that it's much more influential than you might think is because so much of its terminology has entered into our English American vernacular. For example, just about everyone listening has heard of karma, has heard of nirvana, if nothing else, the band, has heard of reincarnation, has heard of yoga and avatars and mantras. Uh, or mantras, all, all of those are Hindu in origin. Fans of the show Lost might remember the Dharma initiative. Dharma is a Hindu concept. Fans of the office might remember the holiday Diwali. So even though it, it has been rather culturally influential, we're familiar with words and phrases, most Americans and most Christians know very little about it. So let's bridge the gap a bit this morning. The first thing that I want you to know about Hinduism is that the name Hinduism itself is not actually rooted in Hinduism or even in India. Instead, it was a name that was imposed on the religion by outsiders. Around the 6th century BC, the Persians began to explore the Indus River and they referred to everything east of the Indus River as Hindu. The word Hindu and Indus and India, all of those are related. So the people living beyond the Indus River were called Hindu. The culture was called Hindu. So originally Hindu just meant that which is beyond the Indus River. In other words, India. For more than a thousand years, the label Hindu had no specific religious connotation. It was more of a cultural connotation, more of a people connotation. But then in the early 19th century under British colonial rule, the term Hinduism was coined by English writers to refer to a family of religious traditions. Therefore, some Hindus today are uncomfortable with the term Hinduism because of those colonial origins. So you might meet someone who is a practicing Hindu who would not consider themselves a, quote, Hindu or, or would not consider their religion to be Hinduism because of those colonial uh, connotations. That's the first thing to know. The second thing is there is no single founder of Hinduism. Unlike Mormonism, which was founded by uh, Joseph Smith, Islam founded by uh, Muhammad, Christian science founded by Maker ba uh, Mary Baker Eddy, and even Buddhism, which was founded by Gautama Buddha. There is, uh, there is no single uh, human founder or anything like that. There's also no known date of origin. It's been around since at least 5,500 BC. And along the way, Hinduism has evolved over these thousands of years. That's one of the major distinctives of this religion. Unlike Christianity, which was once for all handed down to the saints, Hinduism is a, a, a religion that cons, uh, consistently and continually evolves. Think of a slow avalanche that gathers more and more snow for millennia. That's Hinduism. It rolls along, and as it does so, it incorporates these various ideas, and it evolves and adapts as it goes. In fact, even contradictory ideas can be assimilated and are assimilated, and that's not seen as a philosophical problem. So there are streams of Hinduism that believe one thing, and other branches, other streams that believe the exact opposite, and that works within the religion. It works mostly because Hinduism is best understood not as a single religion, but rather a family of religions. 
each perhaps quite different. A group of religions under one single banner called Hinduism. Now that presents some problems for us as we try to summarize the religion because it makes summary almost impossible. Since one Hindu might believe in multiple gods, others believe in one God, and still others in no God. So a lot of common elements wouldn't necessarily apply to all the different forms of Hinduism because it's so complex and so diverse. Now we've talked about this a little bit before when it comes to evangelism with our neighbors of other faiths, but it's all the more important that you recognize that when it comes to Hinduism, if you want to know what your Hindu neighbor believes, the only way to do so is through relationship. Not presumption, not just reading a book on Hinduism and assuming your neighbor believes that. If you assume your Hindu coworker is polytheistic, you may be completely wrong. If you assume they are vegetarian who worships cows, you may be completely wrong. If you assume they worship idols, you may be completely wrong. So don't assume. Get to know them. Invite them over for dinner. One of the biggest things to know about Hinduism, we've mentioned this before, is that Hinduism itself is extremely diverse. That said, there are a few common elements that make something distinctively Hindu. In general, if you believe these distinct elements, then you are Hindu. So let me give you one, the one overarching criterion for something to be considered Hindu. For any belief to be subsumed under the Hindu umbrella of religions, it has to fit within the traditional culture of India. That's it. That's the main criteria. It has to fit within the traditional culture of India. If a belief can fit into uh, traditional Indian culture, it can be Hindu. Now, fortunately, there's a lot of latitude for that uh, principle, but let's flesh out that one criterion of fitting within Indian culture by giving four general characteristics of Hinduism. In general, Hinduism upholds the following four principles. All right, the first thing is that for something to be Hindu, it has to have some sort of a regard for the Vedas, which is a form of Hindu scripture. We'll talk about that shortly. It has to have a regard for the Vedas, Hindu scripture, as being authoritative. This doesn't mean that you have to accept it as literally true or practice exactly what it commands, but it does mean that you have to respect the, the Vedas and, have, uh, and believe that they have some degree of authority in the pursuit of life. That's the first one, regard for the Vedas. Second, there must be a respect for the veneration of the various levels of deities and spirits. By the way, this is, uh, this is where the idea of the protection of cows come from. Hindus don't worship cows, at least most don't, uh, but cows symbolize the mother of all gods and are thus given appropriate honor. This does not mean that all Hindus are vegetarian, however. Some are, but many are not. So that's the second one. There has to be a, a respect for the veneration of various levels of deities and spirits. We'll talk about some of those things uh, in a bit. Third, uh, for something to be Hindu, it has to have an acceptance of the caste system. Although legally, uh, the caste system is less restrictive than historically, and discrim discrimination is uh, illegal in India, it's still culturally important and is technically an essential aspect of Hindu religions. 
which is why even though Hinduism can incorporate widely contradictory philosophies, other religions that were birthed out of Hinduism, like Buddhism and Jainism, uh, are now considered beyond the bounds of Hinduism in that they explicitly reject the caste system. And then lastly, in order for something to be Hinduism, there must be this necessary belief in reincarnation. We'll talk about that shortly. So those are the four general characteristics of all forms of Hinduism. They have to have at least some respect for the Vedas, some respect and veneration of the levels of deities and spirits, a recognition of the authority of the caste system, and a belief in reincarnation. To adhere to these principles is to be Hindu. Though obviously, given the diversity, this is painting with a very broad brush. So that's what is Hinduism, just an introduction to it. Let's talk a little bit more specifically as we look at kind of Hindu theology, in particular, what is their doctrine of God or gods? Now, any attempt to explain Hindu theology, the doctrine of God, is bound to be reductionistic because there's not just one common concept. Again, it's complex. We'll hear that over and over and over again. Let me give you just some examples of this complexity. Some Hindus think of God or gods as impersonal, but others don't. Others think of, uh, of God as being a more personal concept. Some promote idol worship, Others militantly oppose the idea of idol worship. Remember, Hinduism isn't really one religion, but rather a group of religions, all subsumed under the Hindu umbrella. As we mentioned before, some Hindus, some forms of Hinduism are pantheistic. pantheistic. Some are polytheistic, meaning the belief in many gods. Some are monotheistic. Some are agnostic or atheistic. But perhaps most would best be described as henotheistic, which has absolutely nothing to do with henna, which is a form of body art, like temporary tattoo. So not henna, but heno, henotheism. What is henotheism? What's well, the worship of a primary deity while recognizing the existence of other deities? Think about how a lot of churches have elders. Yes, they have lots of pastors, lots of elders, but really everyone knows that one pastor is supreme. He's the over-overseer. He's the elder elder. He's the lead senior pastor to rule them all. That's like henotheism. Or henotheism is what you see in ancient Greek, Roman, or Norse tales of a pantheon of gods with Zeus or Jupiter or Odin as the supreme god. So many, if not most Hindus, would think that many gods exist, but one god is higher. That might be Brahma or Vishnu or Shiva or some, uh, even some other god. In fact, Hindus tend to view individual gods and goddesses as personifications or manifestations of an immense unifying force that governs all existence and which cannot be fully known by humanity, but is manifest in various forms or avatars, that's where we get that word, as individual gods. So behind the many gods stands, stands one ultimate reality known as Brahman, B-R-A-H-M-A-N. Brahman was originally thought of as an impersonal essence without attributes or qualities that is, basis, uh, that is the basis of all existence. Think of the force in, uh, in the Star Wars uh, movies. That's kind of the original concept of Brahman. 
And over time, Brahman has, has come to be viewed as something more personal, less like a force, more like an actual kind of person, a personal God with actual attributes. And this personified form of Brahman is called Ishvara. And Ishvara became known to humanity through the Trimurti, the three manifestations of Brahman known as Brahma, the creator of the universe, Vishnu, the preserver or sustainer of the universe, and Shiva, the destroyer of the universe. By the way, my pronunciation on all of these words is probably really bad and my buddy Gaba is going to make fun of me for it, but I'm doing the best I can. Okay, most Hindus worship one of these three forms or manifestations of Brahman. Again, uh, again, the Trimurti, the three manifestations, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, kind of the upper echelon of gods. Most Hindus worship one of these three forms or manifestations of Brahman as supreme. And by the way, each of these deities has at least one divine spouse. So Ishvara refers to the personified form of Brahman the God force or God. And, uh, and so the Brahman is personified through avatars. What are avatars besides uh, bad James Cameron movies? Avatars are manifestations of deities in human or animal forms to counteract some particular evil in the world. So it's kind of similar to, and I stress the word kinda, kinda similar to the Christian idea of incarnation the word avatar means to cross over or come down. So the gods come down or cross over and manifest as men or animals. So each god might have myriad avatars, many uh, myriad uh, times that they cross over and personify themselves and manifest themselves to humanity. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore there are myriad forms to worship. If each god is crossed over multiple times in multiple forms, then there are multiple gods to worship. As a result, there is this complex and flexible pantheon which forms most of Hinduism. It's, like, it's kind of like trying to rank the best bands of all times. My list looks very different from Jared's or Tim's, for instance. If you've heard of it, Tim hates it. Jared likes whatever is popular. Carl refuses to answer the question and names his favorite symphony instead. Well, likewise, if you were to ask a Hindu to rank the gods, that's a tall task. They're all going to have different responses considering that there is something, there is something like 330 million gods in the pantheon. When I told that number to Tim, 330 million gods in the pantheon, his response is, I wonder who counted that high. By the way, that just so happens to be the population of the U.S. today approximately. Imagine trying to rank every single person in the U.S. from best to worst, from highest to lowest, beyond everyone loving Tom Hanks, we probably couldn't agree on anything else. So we're on thin ice in trying to summarize what uh, Hindus believe because there is such complexity and diversity, but let's do our best. As I mentioned, there are about 330 million identified gods in the Hindu pantheon. Again, most Hindus would think that Vishnu, Shiva, or Brahma, again, this is the Trimurti, the, the three forms of Brahman. Most would believe that those are in the upper echelon, and each god typically has an avatar. And rather than condemning other gods, Hindus have traditionally assimilated them 
into lower levels of the hierarchy of spirits. So if they meet another spirit, if they meet another God, they simply just incorporate them into that pantheon. So many are technically henotheistics. They might worship one God as supreme, but practically they're polytheists. But it all depends on what you mean. If you think that Brahman is the only true God and that he's a personal being and not just a force, then you might even say that you're a monotheist. Well, those who think that he's just a force or it's just a force might say that they're atheists. And even Jesus is sometimes accepted as a manifestation or an avatar. Most Hindus would have no problem with the idea that Jesus is a God, but by that they just mean that he's a manifestation or an avatar of God. So if you tell a Hindu to worship Jesus, most would probably have no problem with that. They would simply add him to their ever-growing pantheon of gods. Whereas what Christians mean when we say to worship Jesus is to worship him to the exclusion of all other pretenders, all false gods. So we need to be careful in sharing the gospel with Hindus lest we miscommunicate what we mean. We don't just mean that Jesus is another God. We mean that he is God and there is no other God. So that's the Hindu concept of God or gods. Let's talk about he, uh, Hindu scripture. Like everything else in Hinduism, the concept of scripture is really complex. There's not just one bound text, in fact, but various authoritative books with varying levels of authority. In fact, there's not even a commonly uh, universally known a, a definition of what is and is not scripture in Hinduism. Rather than a single book, such as the Bible or the Quran or something like that, Hindus have numerous sacred writings. It begins with the Vedas, which sounds like someone from uh, Boston trying to pronounce the name of the Sith Lord. The Vedas mean knowledge, and they were composed around 1500 BC to 1000 BC as a collection of verses and hymns containing revelations received by ancient sages. The oldest of these, the Rig Veda, uh, is uh, 1,000 poems addressed to various deities. And all of these Vedas are arranged uh, by verses. Those verses are called mantras. The most famous, perhaps, of all of these mantras, of all of these verses, is this. They call him Indra, Mitra, Varuna, Agni. He is the heavenly, nobly winged Garutman. To what is one, sages give many a, uh, a title. They call it Agni Yama Matarisvan. Notice what we said about the mystical, complex view of God in Hindu theology. You see that here. There is one, Brahman, but he manifests as many, uh, many Indra, Mitra, etc. Or there's a, uh, there's a mantra regarding creation that says this. There was neither non-existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky which is beyond. What stirred? Where? In whose protection? Was there water bottomlessly deep? There was neither death nor immortality then. There was no distinguishing sign of night nor of day. That one breathed, windless by its own impulse. Other than that, there was nothing beyond. Whence this creation has risen. Perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows, or perhaps he does not know. What in the world does that mean? It means everything or nothing. Well, speaking of creation, 
Various schools of thought in Hinduism disagreed. Again, you'll hear that phrase over and over. Schools of thought disagreed over the nature of the physical universe. Some consider it to be real. Others consider it to be only illusory. The the debate is basically over the relationship between Brahman, again, the, the ultimate God or force of reality, to everything else. Is Brahman the only reality and everything else is an illusion? Is the universe real? but only an extension of Brahman or are Brahman and the universe separate existing entities, separate existing realities? Each of those positions uh, exist within Hinduism. Even within these categories, there are additional nuanced divisions. There are also many common practitioners who simply don't bother about asking such philosophical questions. So those are the Vedas though. The Vedas are the, the, the fountainhead of Hinduism. They're the fountainhead, but they exert very little practical influence on most Hindus today. Kind of like what most Christians would do with the book of Numbers, right? It's a very important book. It's part of the Pentateuch. And yet most Christians have very little understanding uh, and, uh, and aren't influenced all that much by uh, the book of Numbers. Out of the Vedas spring the Sutras and the Brahmanas and then the, Apun- uh, the uh, Upanishads. The Upanishads provide the basic source for many important topics of Indian philosophy, such as karma and dharma. In addition to these texts, there are also these two epic poems in particular, uh, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Again, my pronunciation is horrible, but this latter one, uh, the Mahabharata, uh, has the Bhagavad Gita, which you might have heard of before. And while these poems, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, uh, are technically not scripture, a lot of day-to-day layman theology and philosophy is derived from here. One of our deacons, Gaba, was raised as a Hindu in India, and he has said that watching shows on these poems and reading them is a major form of Hindu discipleship, if you use uh, that word. It's a very important part of Hindu education. Lastly, in addition to all of these, you also have authoritative documents like the, tan- the Tantras and the Puranas. Not Purana, which are a mean fish, but Puranas. So again, you see the complexity and diversity of Hindu scripture. And most of these are written in Sanskrit, which is a word that just means well-made. In other words, works which were well-made and worthy were written in Sanskrit. Interestingly, there seems to be no record that anyone ever actually spoke Sanskrit. No, uh, no group ever used it as its actual vernacular. Instead, it just seems to be a literary language, a language that's only used for writing, in particular for writing these uh, Hindu scriptures. So that's Hindu scripture. Let's talk about uh, uh, salvation within Hinduism. What I mean by salvation is the goal or the purpose of life or existence And Hindus believe we have four goals in life, known as the purisartha, the object of human pursuit. Those four goals are pleasure, productivity, duty, and salvation. Pleasure, productivity, duty, and salvation. Pleasure, the word kama, which means enjoyment of the material world. And in particular, it refers to sexual Uh, passion. Some people might have heard of the book, the Kama Sutra. That's what that is referring to. Productivity is the second one. That is the word artha. That's the the pursuit of material prosperity, productivity. 
The next one is duty, dharma, not karma, but dharma, like that show Dharma and Greg or the Dharma Initiative. Dharma means conducting ourselves in a way conducive to spiritual advancement. In other words, your duty. And then lastly, you have salvation, moksha. Moksha or salvation is the liberation from the attachments caused by dependence on the material world and from the cycle of birth and rebirth. So in general, Hindus consider dharma more important than artha or, uh, or kama, while moksha is considered the ultimate ideal of human life. And beyond these four goals in life, there's very little agreement as to what salvation entails. Though there is consensus that humanity is trapped in a series or cycles of reincarnation. And so salvation is to get out of that. Remember what we said earlier, the, the doctrine of reincarnation is essential to Hinduism. If you reject reincarnation, then you are no longer talking about Hinduism. It's something else entirely. Hinduism can and does evolve and assimilate various ideas, but always within the boundaries of those principles we discussed earlier. Respect for the scriptures, respect for the gods, belief in reincarnation, and appreciation of the caste system. In a second, we'll talk about reincarnation, but for now, we just need to know that the general goal is to escape from that cycle. Escape from future rebirth. We talked about this term before, moksha. That's liberation from this cycle of reincarnation. So salvation is not like Christianity. It's not like, uh, it's not being saved from sin. It's not uh, being saved from condemnation. It's not being saved from hell or God's wrath. Those things don't make sense in Hinduism. Salvation isn't about being saved from sin to God, but rather being saved from this life, saved from these cycles of existence in reincarnation. So how do you achieve this moksha, this release or liberation? Well, if you've been paying attention to this point, you can probably guess that there is no universal agreement, but there are three general paths, each developed over time. The first one, around 1500 B.C., you had the development of the way of works uh, around a millennia later, around 500 BC. We see the way of knowledge, not like the way that we think of knowledge through a Western lens, which is dependent on things like logic and philosophy, but rather this meditative, super rational realization, which is why there's such mysticism in much Hindu philosophy, as we read with the creation account and the concept of Brahman. If you remember those mantras that were uh, somewhat diverse and, and, uh, and complex and, and mystical. Around 200 BC, you have the development of the third path, uh, which is the most popular path, that is the way of devotion. Now you need to understand that when we talk about devotion, the goal of worship of the deities isn't so much salvation in the way that Christians think of salvation. Devotion, worship is offered in a quid pro quo with a God. I give you this gift and you give me this worldly blessing. So it's a form of spiritual bargaining, kind of like the so-called prosperity gospel. I give you my seed money and you give me a fancy jet. So now we've talked about the four goals, pleasure, productivity, duty, and salvation. We've talked about the three paths and let's talk now about these uh, four primary ways to experience oneness with Brahman. Remember Brahman, the one God or force behind all others. What are the four primary ways to experience oneness with Brahman and to, uh, to obtain moksha, release from these cycles of reincarnation? 
Each of these four ways are called yoga, right? Yoga means something like yoking or joining together. So these four types of yoga are ways for humanity to be yoked to Brahman. You have karma yoga, which is performing one's duties selflessly. You have bhakti yoga, which is loving Brahman through devotion and service. You have, uh, I can't even pronounce this word, uh, J-N-A-N-A, jnana yoga, study and contemplating sacred text. And then you have raja yoga, which is physically preparing the body and mind to allow deep meditation and introspection so as to overcome suffering caused by material attachments. What we think of as yoga in terms of, the, of exercise today is really only a form of raja yoga. There's more we could say about Hindu salvation, but it overlaps with reincarnation. So let's talk a little bit about reincarnation. All right, to understand reincarnation, you need to understand the Hindu concept of sin, right? In short, Hinduism has no concept of sin, at least, at least as we understand it, as an offense against an infinitely holy God. Instead, Hindus generally believe that humans can create good or bad consequences for their actions. This idea is known as karma from the Sanskrit word whose literal meaning is action. And it refers to the law that every action has an equal reaction, either immediately or at some point in the future. Good or virtuous actions that are actions that are in harmony with dharma. If you remember, dharma means duty. So good or virtuous actions, actions in harmony with your dharma, with your duty, will have good reactions or responses. And bad actions that are actions that are against dharma, duty, will have the opposite effect. Sometimes that happens immediately and you see it. Just search instant karma on YouTube. Other times it's hidden. I think that's what a karma, a karma chameleon is. It's hidden in the sense that we don't see it in this life, but rather in the next. But whether karma catches you now or later, karma always, always catches up because it's an unbreakable law. So what exactly is karma? Well, it's the law of cause and effect. As the gladiator says, whatever is done in this life echoes in the next. The hope is that if you live a good life, you will return as a higher form. But obviously the opposite is also true. And karma always win. All people get exactly what their actions merit. That's a big word that you need to hear. All people get exactly what their actions merit, what they deserve, what they earn. This is not a religion of grace, but of merit. You get what you earn, you get what you deserve. Now, this is unlike, some people might think this is kind of like fate, but this is really unlike the concept of fate, which operates regardless of human action. Karma can and is affected by your actions. In fact, it's based on your actions. So it's unlike the concept of fate. It's also unlike the concept of judgment from a Christian standpoint. Uh, Karma is not some sort of divine decree It's a very impersonal thing. So don't think of karma like a judge applying a law, but rather some sort of natural law like gravity. That's what karma is. It's a natural law. It's impersonal. And so karma stands behind reincarnation as the force or the law that's driving it. So let's talk a little bit more about reincarnation. In Hindu theology, it's called samsara or samsara. It means wanderings or existence. 
It refers to this seemingly endless cycle of lives encompassing the entire realm of living beings from lowest animals to humans. That's what I mean by lower and higher forms, from lowest animals up to humans. So think of all life forms existing on a really big ladder. Male humans of the highest caste are at the top. Worms and slugs are something towards the bottom. And Hindus believe that the souls of all living things, all men and animals, the souls, the word there is Atman, the, the souls, the Atman is eternal. And that when the physical body dies, the soul is reborn in another body, whether of an insect or an animal or a human. Now your place on the ladder is set for this life. There is nothing you can do about it. You exist as a man today. You will exist as a man tomorrow. You will exist as a man until you die and then enter, uh, reincarnate as something else. There's nothing you can do about it. But you can move up or down the ladder in this next life, depending on the laws of karma. If you do lots of good stuff, you move up in the next life. Otherwise, you take two steps backward. Go straight to jail. Do not pass go. That's what karma is. That's how karma drives reincarnation. Now, in more Western New Age thought, reincarnation is sometimes seen as a positive thing. That's an opportunity, right? For optimists, you think, I made this mistake in this, uh, this life, but I can correct it in the next. But you need to understand in Hinduism, reincarnation is not a positive good thing. It's a highly negative concept. Why? Because life, with all of its suffering, is a burden. Even if you are in the highest caste, as a male human, the highest animal form, still you are alive and to live is to suffer. Multiple lives means multiple lifetimes of suffering. In other words, reincarnation doesn't give hope for life after death. It is the threat of continuing life and thus continuing misery. And unfortunately, you can never really know what will happen in the next life. Because you can't see karma's scorecard. You don't even know if you are moving up or down the ladder. In other words, there is inherent uncertainty. This is a huge area of opportunity for the Christian with our understanding of assurance and confidence and eternal security. That is what your Hindu neighbor or your Hindu coworker by definition cannot have. You also can't cheat karma. To undercut the system just makes things worse for both parties. For example, if you are of a higher class and you see some of a lower class suffering, according to uh, a traditional philosophical thought, you shouldn't help that person. They're suffering because they earned suffering. They're suffering because of karma. And karma is necessary because of past actions. So you would only make things worse for both you and them by opposing karma. Therefore, it is your duty, it is your dharma in some sense to ignore the sufferings of others. This also means that even if you are going to try to keep track uh, of your place, of your points on your karma card, you couldn't. Maybe by letting that person cut in front of you of line, in, uh, cutting in front of you in line, you acted against karma. Maybe by cutting ahead of them, you acted against karma. You really can't ever be sure. So the goal, though, is to continue to move up the ladder until eventually karma releases you from samsara and you achieve, you attain moksha. Release, liberation, as you're united to 
Brahman, the one behind the many. And you do so through duty and knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, knowledge of your real self. In particular, it's by realizing that your Atman, your soul, or your existence is a part of Brahman. Atman is Brahman, is a big saying in, in Hinduism. In other words, everything else about you, your body, your thoughts, your experiences, all of those things are just maya. They're an illusion or a mirage. Only your Atman, only your soul, in a sense, is real. And your Atman is but an extension of Brahman. When you finally realize that, your soul re-enters Brahman as a drop of water coming back to the ocean and you achieve a state of bliss known as nirvana. So that is the concept of uh, a reincarnation and its dependence upon the law of karma. Let's talk a little bit about caste and stages. Remember the, that, uh, that the word Hinduism isn't really what many Hindus would use to describe their religion because of the colonial sort of origins of that. Instead, one of the names used by Hindus is Varnashram Dharma. Varnashram Dharma, which means duty to God according to caste and stage of life. We'll take each of those in, uh, in term. Let's talk first about caste. For centuries, caste and the caste system has dictated almost every aspect of Hindu religious and social life with each group occupying a specific place in this complex hierarchy. Now, technically, modern discrimination by caste is illegal, but ingrained attitudes certainly persist and pervade and permeate everything in, uh, in Hindu society. Remember what we said earlier, to be Hindu is to accept the caste system. Buddhism is seen as incompatible with Hinduism but precisely because it rejects this caste system. And the Sanskrit word for caste is varna, which literally means color. So right off the bat, you should note the inherent discrimination in the caste system. Not just any discrimination, but actual racism. The caste system originated in the light-skinned Aryans attempt to retain a superior status over the dark-skinned vanquished people once the Aryans migrated to the Indus River millennia ago. Now, as, a, as an aside, as we record this, our country is erupting over the issue of race. So this is a good reminder that racism is not an American problem or a white problem or a black problem or a Western problem. It's a human problem. And if it's a human problem and not just a problem related to one particular culture or one particular eth uh, ethnicity, then there can't just be one ethnic cure or one cultural cure. Instead, it has to be a transcultural cure. In other words, the gospel. The problem with our current conversation over race is that we make racism into a particularly American problem with a particularly American cure rather than recognizing that the cure was already crucified and the dividing wall of hostility has already been broken down. So this is a reminder that this is a universal problem. Digression and rant over. Back to caste. Traditional Hindu teaching uh, asserts that castes are inflexible. In other words, you can't switch castes. You can't marry outside of your caste either. And there's four major castes. And those are separated, those are divided into multiple levels, all right? There's three different levels. On the first level, you have the top three castes. All of these are considered twice born. That phrase 
In other words, they are permitted full participation in Hindu life, whereas those below them can only participate in uh, to certain levels. So there's four major castes divided into three levels. The first level actually contains the top three castes. The first one, the highest caste, is the Brahmin, not to be confused with Brahman, but Brahmin, which is the priestly caste. Bear in mind that Hinduism began not as just one religion, but as a family of polytheistic and ritualistic religions with various sacred rites performed by the heads of particular households or tribes. And as time passed, the rituals became increasingly more complex and complicated. And so the need arose uh, for a specialized priestly class to learn and administer all of these rituals. So that's the first, the, the highest, the Brahmin or the priestly. The second caste is the warrior or the ruler ca- uh, class. There was a long debate uh, a long time ago as to which of these the top two were the highest with the priestly winning out, mostly because the priests were the ones who were interpreting the documents, so they made the rules. Now notice how subjective the caste system is. Imagine I want to make a caste. I look around, I choose those of the same skin color and the same profession as me, and I say, yeah, we're the top. Make that the top caste. You have the Brahmin, the priestly, then you have the warrior or the ruler caste. After that, you have the business caste. That includes farmers and traders and merchants. Again, all of these are considered twice born. They're permitted full participation in Hindu life, whereas those below them can only participate to certain levels. On the second level, are what are called the other backward castes by the, uh, by the Indian government. And this caste, this particular caste, exists to serve the three castes above them, which is quite a convenient co- coincidence for those above. This is the caste of manual labors, all right? Manual labors. But that's not all, because in this caste, the, the, the name of the caste is the Shudras, within this caste, you have both unclean and clean. The unclean can't be taught the Vedas, and thus there's little hope, little chance whatsoever that they could move beyond this caste in the next life. In other words, once a servant, always a servant. You can never actually go up. You could go down, but you would never actually go up, and that's very inconvenient for you. But there's hope, because at least you yourself can have a servant. How? by simply creating a subcast below yourself. In effect, there are hundreds of subcasts within this particular caste. You're too busy serving others to take care of all your own needs, so you need your own servant too, so you just create a subcaste uh, below you. But that's the second level, uh, the, the level, uh, the caste of manual uh, laborers. So technically you have four castes, and then you have a fifth group known as the outcasts. Coincidentally, our staff follows this same pattern. I'm like the Brahmin, the priestly caste. Zach is obviously of the warrior caste. He's always talking about guns and knives and stuff. Carl's the business class uh, uh, because he likes to get stuff done. If you've never met business Carl, it's a terrifying thing. Tim is the manual laborer because he's pretty handy. What about Jared? Jared's the outcast. I think we all know why. So outcast is literally the third level of the caste system. Literally called the outcast because they are outside of the caste system. So this third level, the outcast, they're called the Dalits. They're the oppressed. Even the shadow of such an untouchable has the power to pollute a higher caste person, which is why I never let Jared stand between me and the sun. Now, since Gandhi referred to them somewhat kindly, there's been a bit of approval of their status, but they're still oppressed in various ways. 
Now, by the way, Christianity has made uh, some inroads among this class, among the Dalits, and a bit among the manual laborers, but has hardly had any influence among the higher caste, which actually makes sense. As Jesus says, those who are well think they don't need a doctor, but those who are sick uh, know it. So that's the caste system. Let's talk a little bit about stages of life because that's an important aspect of Hindu philosophy as well. According to Hinduism, your dharma, again, your duty, is dependent upon your ashram, your stage of life. This isn't too unfamiliar if you actually think about it. So it's now summer, it's in June. What are most kids in America expected to do during the summer? Most kids aren't studying most kids aren't reading ahead for the next school year. Most are resting, they're breaking, they're playing. But are most adults doing so? No, some are, I guess, but most of us aren't. But why aren't adults sleeping till noon and playing video games and eating candy all day long? Because though we're in the same season of the year, summer, we're in a totally different season of life. We're no longer kids, we're adults. We have jobs, we have kids, whatever it might be. So according to Hinduism, there are four stages of life. Again, these are called ashram. The first stage is the student stage. Then you have the householder stage. Then you have the stage of quiet retreat. And then you have the stage of homeless wanderer. And the reason this is important is because your duty depends not only on your caste, but also on your stage of life. If you want to know what you should do it depends on your caste and your season of life. And remember, dharma is important because it is what activates karma, all right? So karma is based on whether or not you act in accordance with your dharma, with your duty. And your duty depends on your ashram, which is your stage of life. So dharma depends on varna, your caste, and ashram, which is your stage of life. So that's caste and stages of life. Uh, last the thing we want to talk about before we'll relate this to Christianity is holy times and places. We won't spend as much time on this section, but it's important to recognize that Hindus place a very high value on sacred seasons and spaces and holy times and holy places. That unintentionally rhymes. It sounds like a line from Hillsong or Bethel. But as for holy times, there are, there are tons of holy times celebrated by festivals Again, fans of The Office are probably familiar with Diwali. That's just one of uh, a number of different festivals. You also have Holi, which is the festival of colors where balls of color are thrown on people. You've probably seen this on uh, uh, National Geographic or something like that. The last time that uh, our deacon Gaba uh, went home to visit his parents, I asked, me to, I asked him to get me one of those balls. I thought it'd be fun to throw colored balls at my daughter uh, it got in her eye and she didn't love it. So that was Holly. But uh, in addition to that, you have Onam and you have various celebrations of various gods. Many gods have their own unique festivals. And these festivals were particularly important uh, historically in the past in that the use of song and dance and drama helped communicate traditions in a pre-literate society. In addition to these holy times, there are also a number of holy places. So many Hindus make traditional pilgrimages to some aforementioned festival or holy rivers or to temples or tombs. And these holy places are kinda, again, stressing kinda, similar to the idea of the temple in the Old Testament, a place where heaven and earth overlap, kind of like a portal to the divine. And by the way, when it comes to temple worship, it's not communal 
like in Christian churches where everyone stands together at the reading of the word, everyone takes communion together, everyone listens to the sermon together, everyone sings together. Instead, it would seem much more chaotic to us because different people are doing different things at different times. All right, now speaking of the differences between Christianity and Hinduism, let's summarize some of the things we've already noted and we'll end with this. All of these things we've talked about before, but by way of summary, here are some of the major distinctives between Christianity and Hinduism. As it relates to God, again, most Hindus would view God as being some sort of impersonal force, right? Some would also view him as a more personal sort of being, but in Christianity, he is explicitly personal. Or what about Jesus? Well, in Hinduism, Jesus is perhaps one among the many. In Christianity, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. In Hinduism, how many gods are there? Well, there's many. In Christianity, there's one. The one true triune God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What about the concept of humanity within Hinduism? Well, in Hinduism, Humans are extended from the very being of God. Atman is Brahman. Our soul is an extension of Brahman, of God. In Christianity, we are completely separate from and distinct from the being of God, but we're made in his image, distinct from the rest of creation. What's the problem in Hinduism? The problem with the world is ignorance. It's karma. It's this cycle of reincarnation. What's the problem in Christianity? It's rebellion and sin against an infinitely holy and good God. So what's the solution in Hinduism? What's liberation from this cycle, from samsara, from this cycle of reincarnation? What's the solution in Christianity? It's forgiveness and redemption. What's the means of attaining this solution in Hinduism? It's by striving, it's by working, it's by self-effort. What's the means of redemption, the, the means of attaining this solution in Christianity? It's by faith and repentance. Well, what's the outcome in Hinduism? The outcome of this salvation is nirvana. You merge into the divine oneness Yourself is dissolved, you lose yourself, the individual disappears. Not in Christianity, instead, you are yourself, but you, you spend eternity experiencing pleasure and joy in God. Eternal life with God is the outcome. And then what about the Hindu concept of scripture? Well, there's many books of varying levels of authority and they're inspired only in the sense of being inspirational, like a, a, a poem inspires you or something. Whereas in Christianity, there's one book composed of 66 books of inspired divine authority in the sense of God breathed. So that's a not too brief overview of Hinduism. Next week, we'll talk about Buddhism, which arose from Hinduism. So I hope you will check that out as, uh, as well. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name for your love and grace. You're not some impersonal force. You're not some capricious God with heavenly rivals. You alone are God and you are good. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word so that we don't have to grasp about in the dark to find you. 
I pray for the billion or so souls trapped, not really trapped in an endless cycle of reincarnation, but rather trapped in sin and slavery to the ruler of this world. I pray that there might be an outpouring of your spirit in India and among the Hindus throughout the world. I pray for that even here as we ourselves interact with our Indian neighbors and coworkers that we might uh, have the love and courage to engage them with hope and truth. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.